Amen. Take your Bibles, Habakkuk chapter 3. We've been in Habakkuk for, uh, this is week number 7, week number 8, I forget, somewhere in that range. We have one more week. I said last week we might finish this week, and after studying for about 10 minutes, I realized we're not going to get this and next week together. Uh, so it's fine. Two weeks uh, left in Habakkuk, this week, next week. A little bit of review of where we're at. We're in a conversation between God and Habakkuk. Right, so, so we think of a prophet, we think of, here's what's coming, you've got this many years left, and those things, and, and there's some of that in here, we saw that chapter 2 with God's response, uh, but it's really this conversation, it's really this inner turmoil of Habakkuk, and, and how, does, how do we handle a God that's holy, that's going to use that Babylon, and, and, and all those things. So we got chapter 2 a couple weeks ago, and in chapter 2, here's God's response, kind of drop the mic moment. Of, of he's holy, he's powerful, he's sovereign, he can use nations, he can rise them up, he can bring them down. And, and so Habakkuk's response, and, and I know I said this a couple weeks ago, like we've been here for a while, um, but Habakkuk's response, you know, beginning of chapter 3 is, is I tremble. And, and I feel like somewhere in, in all of Habakkuk, like this, this story of Habakkuk that we're going through, like, like somewhere we've lost that. Like somewhere we as American culture, we as an American church or whatever you want to call it, like we've lost this idea of fear. And not just like all, like we should have this all of God and like we watch the sunset. I think it's so cool to go watch the sunset in Venice. I don't know why we do this in Venice, but you go watch the sunset in Venice. Most of the time they clap. Like it was a good sunset and people just start clapping. And and at first I thought it was weird and now it's like, no, 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 like God did that. Like we can clap. Like, like I'll do it at my house now. Cool sunset. I clap like out there by myself. Right. Like, like cool thing that we do, like awe inspiring God. And yet there's still this idea of fear. Like, there should not just be, like, God, you're awesome and awe-inspiring, but, like, God, I, like, you're the Almighty. Like, like, you don't fit, Habakkuk's mind, you don't fit into my little box that I made, and it's so cute and nice. Like, you're, you're Almighty, you're, you're big, you're powerful, you're sovereign. Right, so, so we've kind of worked our way through Habakkuk. A uh, couple of things here. One, Exodus 34. If you were Old Testament Jew, like Exodus 34 would be in your mind. You can turn there if you want. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But in Exodus 34, verse 6 and following, there's this, this, the most quoted part of the Old Testament and the New Testament is this, is this passage. And, and what it is, is that there's a God who's gracious, slow to anger, ready to forgive, and yet he will not let the guilty go unpunished. And I feel like in the midst of Habakkuk, do we not find ourselves in this whole story of Habakkuk in the middle of Exodus 34, 6? Like, here's a God who's good and gracious and kind and loyal to his people, and yet in the midst of that, he won't let the guilty go unpunished. And so, so all through Habakkuk, I feel like we've been kind of, and, and, and I don't think there's tension in God. I don't think that's what I mean to say, but like, on our end, I feel like we see this tension. Like, how can there be a good, gracious, loving, loyal God who would also punish? And I feel like we're, we're right there in Exodus 34. One more, this is a New Testament passage, just as thinking through the book of Habakkuk, we'll dive into verse 8 and uh, 8 through 15 this morning, uh, but just kind of thinking, overview of Habakkuk, where have we been? I, I wonder, this is just my thought, kind of outside scripture maybe a little bit. In, in, in the New Testament, Romans 8 verse 28 is a verse that we probably all have at least been familiar with, right? Like, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And what I feel like I've done and what many other people have done is we've taken that word good and we've made it whatever we want it to be. So, so if something bad happens and we're like, that's fine, God's going to use it for good. And in the back of our mind, good is well-behaved children, more money, a nicer house, a car that doesn't break down, a better marriage, like whatever, fill in the blank. Right? And those might be quote-unquote good things or maybe even biblical things, but the context of Romans 8 is what? He's going to work it all together for good that you might be 
transformed the image of his son. So it's your sanctification that God's calling good, not necessarily more money. Okay, what do I think? I think, I, again, just me wondering if Habakkuk knew everything that happened in chapter 2. God's all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's creator God. He's the God who speaks and the God who breathes. Like, like I, none of that should have sounded new to Habakkuk. But I wonder if he, thought, he took everything of, that God would say in chapter 2 before God talks to him, and he's like, yeah, God's all-powerful. He's loyal to his people. Therefore, Israel will never be conquered. Therefore, Judah will never have to go through some sort of captivity. Therefore, because of what I noted to be this to be about God, he's, he's making God fit into what he dis- defines as good. And God in Habakkuk 2 just kind of blows that whole idea up. And, and his response again in verse 1 was, what? I tremble. Because you are not the God that fits into my little world. And, and so as we go through Habakkuk, we've got two weeks left. Uh, this week and then next week, like, I want, I want there to be, and I, I don't know how to say this. It's just going to come out somehow. Uh, I want there to be a greater fear of the Lord. I want there to be a greater like, recognition that, that it's not just a God who's like, on our side. Like, like, he's the creator God of this universe, the one who would speak things into existence. He's the one who, who chapter 2, he breathes, he speaks, he, like, he does these, like, and, and I feel like we've just tried to make God so neat and tidy in our, in our little world, and we use him when we want. Uh, that is not the picture of the God in Habakkuk. And so we saw a little bit of that last week. We're going to see a little bit more of it this week. Just a reminder of where we're at. Habakkuk 3, there's three sections. The first section is God, third person. Like, we're going to talk about him. Talk what he's, okay. Second section is God, you. Like, we're going to see the word you a, a, a whole lot here in this next section. And then next week in the third section is, is me, I, first person. How, how Habakkuk would respond. Okay? One more thing before I, we get too far. There's going to be some application that I'm just going to leave out there. Like, I'm just, I'm not even going to really touch on. And, and the thought is we'll circle back to it in discussion group. Okay, so if you can't make discussion group, I apologize. But from 11, 15 till noonish, we'll talk about the application of some of these things. Not everything, but some of them. Okay? Uh, all that being said, verse 8. Let's read verse 8. Um, let's read all of it. Let's read verse 8 through 15, and then we'll come back and, and work through it. So back at chapter 3, verse 8. Did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses and on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears, the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. Let's dive in. Verse 8. Habakkuk asks this question. Again, this is a poem. This is a song. This is what people would sing. Uh, so I'm going to say this. The 8 through 15, there's going to be a couple of times where I'm going to be like, I'm not sure exactly what this means. I'm not sure how we're supposed to handle this. Hebrew to English, a couple thousand years in between, like some sort of idiom that we don't really grasp, maybe. Uh, I think they knew exactly what Habakkuk's talking about. Right? I don't think this was 
secret message. This wasn't hidden. I think everyone knew exactly what it meant. Okay? But that diving in, verse 8. Did the Lord's rage against the rivers? Was your anger against rivers? Okay, so here's this question. He's going to start out. Was the Lord angry at the rivers? Okay, uh, what we're going to do is last week, what did we say? We said we, we kind of walked through the history of Israel, and it seemed like Habakkuk's going back to Mount Sinai. He's going to the flashing of, of lightning and the thunder that happened on Mount Sinai. It looks like wilderness wanderings. Like, like the history of Israel is where we saw. Okay, so we're still in Habakkuk 3, so we're still going to try and think that context, history of Israel. Okay, so as we think through that, was there a time when God seemed to be angry at the rivers or a river? Yeah, for sure. Like, if, if you're a Jewish, you know, Old Testament person, like, what are you thinking if God's angry at a river? There's probably one river that you have in mind at one specific time that seemed like God was angry at. Right? Nile River. Where does that put us? It puts us in the Exodus. puts us at the plagues. Okay, what did, what did God do? He took the Nile, which was the life source for Egypt, and he turned it into blood. So the question here, though, is what? Was God angry? Like, did, was he furious, is the Hebrew word? Was he furious with the river? The answer is no, he wasn't. He wasn't furious at the river. He wasn't angry at the river. He wasn't going to pour out his wrath on a river. Like, the story of the Bible is that he's going to pour his wrath out on Jesus, the Messiah. He's going to pour his wrath on those who don't repent. Like, that's coming revelation. But there's, there's never the story that God gets mad at his own creation, like the mountains and the rivers that we're going to read about, and he pours his wrath out on them, per se. So what's the point? The point is God says, hey, I, or Habakkuk's saying, God takes the river and he uses it to accomplish his task. Here's the Nile, which is giving life. And in a moment, God can bring Egypt down to its knees by turning it into blood. Like you think you're something, you think you're mighty, you think this most powerful nation in the world. And in a moment, God can, can, can take your life, literally your life-giving river and make it worthless. Right, so, so again, what do we, we're seeing uh, this fear of the Lord. Like, don't fear Egypt, history lesson, like, we, we, Egypt lost, we understand. But, like, don't fear Egypt, fear the one who can turn the river of Egypt into blood. Right, what's the next thing he says? He says, was your wrath against the sea? Okay, we're thinking in that context. So, right, we're in Exodus, uh, here's the river. Okay, what about a sea? Well, that one's pretty easy. Right, God parts the Red Sea. Was he mad at the Red Sea? Of course not. He wasn't angry at the Red Sea. It's not a thing to be angry at. But what did he do? He would part a Red Sea so that he could destroy the armies of Egypt. And again, we're not, we're not going to fear the armies of Egypt. Why? Either we're going to fear the one who can part a sea to take over that army. Like, we think about God and, and like, fire and brimstone and, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, some of those stories, I understand. But it's like, he, did, he didn't just rain down fire in Egypt. He didn't do some, like, river and, and water and a sea that he parts and claps on their army. Like, like this is... It just seems so easy for God to do. Read through the book of Exodus. It wasn't like he had to think hard about it. And what's the point? The point is, here's a God who's greater than our enemies. Here's a God who's, who's greater than Babylon. Here's the guy that's greater than Egypt. I think the uh, end of verse 8 is so interesting. When you think about this context of, of Exodus and, and Pharaoh and his armies, what did we read in Exodus? We read about horses and chariots. What does the end of verse 8 say? That you, God, not, not Pharaoh, not Egypt, that you rode on your, your horses, like your might, your strength on your chariots of salvation. So we think about Exodus, we think what? We think, oh, they had chariots, they had such a great army, like they were so powerful, and Habakkuk flips that on its head, and he's like, no, no, God's the one that's powerful. Like, you were enslaved in, in Egypt, but guess what? God comes, and in his power, what does he bring? And to verse 8, he brings the salvation. The word there just means deliverance. So, so you were once a slave, and now you've been set free. Why? Because there's a God who's more powerful than Egypt. Okay, he's, he's writing this for, for the people of God to sing as they would go into captivity. And it's this reminder that God's more powerful than Egypt, but he's also more powerful than Babylon. 
Verse 9. Your bow was made bare. The rods of, of chastisement were sworn. Okay, that, the, your bow was made bare. Okay, um, it's not hard to understand. You, if you have a bow, bow and arrow, uh, you'd probably have it in a case of some sort. What do you, if you're going to use it, what's your first step? Is you take it out of the case. Right, that's, that's just the picture. That God has a bow. It's been made bare. He's, he's ready to use this bow. He's ready to, to shoot these arrows, as it were. Okay, he's not just inviting the friends over to show off his new bow that he got for hunting season. Like, no, it's, I'm taking it out of the case so that I might use it. Okay, second phrase there in verse 9 then. The rods, that's a Hebrew word. It can mean arrows, stick, it can mean a whole lot of things. Okay, so keeping with this bow thing, we're going to say the arrows of chastisement were sworn. That word chastisement, Hebrew word, we, there's a whole lot of things it can mean. Most of, of the translations, the American Standard here has it differently. A lot of translations has this as words. Okay, so, so the arrows of your words were sworn. Okay, this is a weird way that we wouldn't say this, but I think this is what he's trying to, what Habakkuk's communicating. That God's ready to do work, right? The bow's made bare. He's ready to judge. He's ready to do these things. And, and your, your, your words, these arrows of words were sworn. It's this picture that your word is going to accomplish what it was set out to do. Okay, so, so you picture this bow being made bare. Here's a hunter. He's, he's in his blind. Whether they used blind a couple thousand years ago, that's besides the point, right? But he, he's, he's hunting. There's the animal that he's going to kill. He's a skilled hunter. He's done this hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of times. Like, he, he knows how this is going to go down. Like, when he pulls back the string and he releases, he knows the result. Okay, here's the picture. That God, your, your judgment, these arrows, like, like, your word is going to go forth and it is going to be accomplished. Even more so than a skilled hunter in the field knowing that he's going to take down, a, take down an animal. Right? And, and what's the word there in the middle of verse 9? It's the selah, which is stop and just stop and think about that. Like, God, your words accomplish things. Why? Because your words are powerful. Your word is true. Like, when you speak, the whole world should listen. Why? Because that's what's going to happen. So going back to Habakkuk 2, like, like God says, I'm going to bring up Babylon. But guess what? There's also a day coming when Babylon's going to be punished. And Babylon's going to be brought down. And there will be no more Babylon. And we can bank on that. Why? Because God's words are true. They come, uh, they come to pass. So verse 9, like, like, you spoke these words and they will happen. Like, man, like, do, we, do, we, do we think that way? Like, we read the Bible, man, we get to the Bible, and there's like, man, the world says this, and life says this, and all these things are going on. We read the Bible, like, no, 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 here's the truth. Here's, here's what's real. These are the words that will always come true. Right? That's where Habakkuk's at. That's where Habakkuk's leading the people. End uh, of verse 9. Uh, you cleaved the earth with rivers. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move that, ver- that phrase, because... There's a whole lot of different ideas on that. I'm going to move that verse, as it were, to verse 10, that last phrase. Okay, so you cleave the earth with rivers. What does that mean? I think it will make more sense when we get to verse 10. Okay, the mountains saw you and quaked. Uh, that word quaked, Hebrew word that they would use for the pain of childbirth. Um, so this fear, but it's almost like this, this, this fear of what's coming. Uh, I, we have someone who's pregnant, uh, at least I hope so, because that'd be real weird if I just said that. Uh, but anyway, like, there's this fear, right? Like, I've, I've done this four times, not, not giving birth, obviously, that's not been my side of it. Uh, but there's this fear of like, hey, here's what's coming. Like, like, hopefully it's a good result. Hopefully everything goes well. But there's this like, we kind of know what's coming. Uh, we know what to expect. And at the same time, we have no idea what to expect. 
Right? And, and so here's this fear. Okay, so what is he saying here in verse 10? The mountains saw you and quaked. There's some sort of fear, but it's kind of this anticipation of what's coming type of fear. Okay, so, so just uh, Jeremiah is going to help us out here. So, so you don't have to turn there. If you write in your Bible, write down Jeremiah 51.29 if you want. But in Jeremiah 51.29, here's what the prophet Jeremiah says. So the land quakes, same idea, for the purposes of the Lord against Babylon stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitants. Okay, what's Jeremiah saying? He's saying, and now obviously we, the world's not alive, like we're not going to say Mother Earth or whatever. But what he's saying is as if the mountains know what's about to happen. The judgment that's about to come on Babylon, the, the land, the mountains would quake almost in fear because of what they know is going to happen. And so it's like the whole world should have this fear of the Lord. The whole world should understand that he is God and we are not. The whole world should understand there's only one God who, who, who's alive, who breathes, and who speaks. Like we should all have that recognition, and yet we don't. And so what is he saying? He's saying it's almost as if the mountains understand more about who God is than we do. Like the mountains seem to get it because they seem to be fearful in anticipation of what's about to happen to Babylon. And yet we would live life like no big deal, right? So that thought, uh, I'm going to somehow apply to that you cleave the earth with rivers. There's a lot of different interpretation on that. Continuing in verse 10, though, the downpour of water swept by. A downpour of waters, think violent storm. And this, this picture of swept by seems to be that this violent storm that we would be afraid of wanted nothing to do with God. Like he's nothing in comparison to the Almighty. So that hurricane, that, that hurricane season comes and we get these hurricanes, like, like they're nothing compared to the power of our God. Verse 10, the deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Uh, imagery here, high its hands is these waves, these crashing waves, these large waves. Right in the deep, the, the sound and, and this picture of the, the power of the ocean. And yet, Jeremiah is going to help us out one more time. Jeremiah 5.22 says, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord. Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. The waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot cross over it. And so again, we don't fear uh, some storm. We don't fear something in nature. Like we fear the God who tells the ocean, this is where you stop. On, on the largest waves, the worst day, he still says, this is, this is your point of which you stop. You can, you can utter forth as loud a voice as you want. You can lift as high of hands as you want, this ocean, this deep, and yet God's still the one who's in control, who says, this is where you, this is where it ends. Right? Like my kids, I used to do this as a kid. It's fun watching my kids do it. You know, you stand where the waves used to be, and then the next wave comes, and you turn around, and you like run away from it. And then at some point, you like st- you stand here, and you think the wave's not going to hit you because you think you're far enough away. And so you kind of stand there, and you're like, hey, stop, stop. And you're trying to, right? Like, man, Never have I seen a wave react to that. Like, my nine-year-old now has no power to be like, hey, wave, my feet don't want to get wet. You know, like, not. And yet here's a guy who would say, hey, every, every drop of water on this planet, I tell it where to be. Verse 11. Sun and moon stood in their places. Some, and I'm going to take this, you'll see where I'm going to take it. Uh, broadly speaking, some will leave it. Maybe I shouldn't take it this way. They just leave it this way. That God told the sun and moon where to be. Right? So which again, like, like he tells the water where to stop. And all of a sudden he's like, hey, son, this is where you're supposed to be. I speak and, and, and there it is. 
Like, we don't have this power. We, we don't have anything like this in the Ahmadi. Like, like Babylon, yeah, they're powerful. they got a cool army. Like, they're coming. We understand that, and it's going to be horrible. I don't want to downplay that. But we serve a God who puts the sun and the moon in their place. Keeping in the context of the history of Israel, though, there's a, there's a story where the sun stood in its place. And Joshua's fighting a battle, and Israel, uh, daylight is, is quickly going away, and they feel like they need to win the battle today, and, and God stops the sun in its place for Israel to win the battle that day. And it's like, man, we're, we're worried about this enemy? When, when there's a God who can stop the sun in its place. Second half of verse 11. Uh, you, can, you can look all you want into this, um, a lot of the commentators I used just skipped right over it. Uh, they went to verse 12. So uh, here's, here's kind of the issue. The word they, does it go back to sun and moon? Uh, does it go to nations that we're going to read about in verse 12 and 13? Um, so what do we do with the word they? This is, this is kind of where I'm at. I think they still back to sun and moon. Uh, something about uh, arrows, your word, like we've already covered that, verse 9. Uh, so something about they listen to your words. And there's a whole lot of other things there, gleaming spear, and what does that all mean? I don't have an answer for you on that one. Uh, maybe I'll study it more and come back next week. Verse 12, though. So here's this God who's the, the sun and moon stand in their place because God would tell them to. Verse 12, in indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. Most likely referring back to the promised land as Joshua in this conquest to, to take over the promised land. And, and God would remove the evil people, the people that would... <clears throat> worship false gods that would, that would kill their children, like all these grotesque, horrible things that were part of their culture. Right? And what, what did God do? He comes in and he delivers. He comes in and, and, and gives us this land that he promised. His word is still true. Verse 13. You went forth. Why? Why did you go forth? God, why did you do these things? Verse 12. Why did you march through the, the earth? Why, why did you intervene into the life of these people? You went forth for the salvation of your people. The same word there, that deliverance. For the salvation of your anointed. That's Israel. Right? So, so like, there's a lot of really cool verses, I think, in Habakkuk. As, as I've been studying out, been able to preach through it, like, there's a, there's a lot of verses that, man, it's just going all the way back to uh, chapter 1. Like, God, why are you doing this? And God's response, like, look and observe, because I'm going to do a wonderful thing. Like, man, that's a cool verse. Uh, the God who speaks and breathes. Man, that's one that's just stuck with me. And wrath, remember mercy. Like, what a prayer that Habakkuk would say. Verse 13, I, I feel like this verse is going to be pretty high up there. Like, like, here's this God in verse 12 who would march through the nations, who would trample the nations, who would do these things. Why? For the salvation, the rescue, the deliverance of your people. Okay, so, so throughout the Old Testament, we, we can, you can follow this theme, follow this thread, if you will, that there's a God who would choose his people and he would constantly come, even though they're, they rebel, even though they're unfaithful, even though they fail over and over again, here's a God who rescues. Here's a God who delivers. Right, what a beautiful picture of our God. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. Look at the other part of verse 13. You struck the head of the house of the evil. Okay, weird phrase. Right? Not how we would probably say it in English today. But if, if, if you know your Bible, there should be at some level a, a thought of, of what Habakkuk's talking about. You struck the head of the house of the evil. Okay, Genesis chapter 3. What's the story? Sin enters the world. Adam and Eve sin. All these things. Uh, God has a conversation with the snake. And what does he say to him? 
He says to the snake, to the serpent, you're going to crush. There's one coming, and this one's going to deliver, and all these different things that we, you know, Messiah, that type of person. There's one coming. You're going to bruise his heel. And he says, but he will bruise your head. You're, you're going to look like you've done something. You're going to look like you've hurt him. You're going to look like so you accomplished something. And yet the promise there in Genesis 3.15 is, no, no, no. You're the one who's going to receive the death blow. Okay, so, so in the context, verse 13, what did God do? He did this for the salvation of his people. Verse 12, it seems like the salvation physically of his people and in the promised land. And then all of a sudden, verse 13, it seems like Habakkuk switches it. He says, this isn't just physical deliverance. This isn't just deliverance from Egypt and the people that are in promised land. This isn't just deliverance from Babylon someday. This is deliverance from the, from the one we need deliverance from the most. This is deliverance from sin, death, and hell. Like This is a reminder that God's done it physically in our history, and he's going to do it somehow uh, eternally in the future. And with Jesus coming, and all, like, he's going to rescue us from our greatest enemy. And so here's Genesis 3.15. Here's the story of one who's coming who's going to crush the serpent's head. Like, like, how amazing does that make our God? That last phrase in verse 13, to lay him open from thigh to neck. Like, you, you're, the enemy will be completely destroyed. And again, here's that other, that word once again, Selah. Like, just stop and think. Like, here's a God who rescues. He wants to rescue. He wants to save. And not just from your physical enemy, but for all eternity. Verse 14. You pierced. Like, God, you're the one who's done this. You've, you've, you've raised up things. You've, you're, at, you're orchestrating things. You've intervened in things. Like, once again, you, you, you. But verse 14, you pierced with his own spears. Okay, the, the head of his throngs, they stormed in to scatter us. The exhortation was like those who devoured the press and seeker. Okay, that first phrase, though, I think is this overarching idea for verse 14. You pierce with his own spears. Okay, if you study through the Old Testament, how does God normally punish or judge different people? A lot of times, even Habakkuk 2, they receive judgment just like the sin they dished out. So Habakkuk 2, what do we read? You, you looted people, guess what? They're going to rise up to loot you. you. You did some sort of evil to people, they're going to rise up and return the evil to you. Okay, Psalm, what do you even talk about? Psalms 9, verse 15. The nations are sunk down in the pit that they made. And the net which they hid for their uh, they hid is their own foot taken. Okay, so there's this picture that God would would bring judgment uh, based on the sin that you did, and kind of turns it on and said, okay. So in reference to verse 13, though, like Habakkuk says in or God says in Habakkuk 2 that Babylon's going to receive punishment that it's going to look a lot like the sin that they committed on other nations. But you look back at verse 13, here's one that's going to bruise his heel, and, and, and the devil thinks, hey, this is some sort of victory. right? The Messiah, the Son of God, has come, and he has died on a cross. That looks pretty significant, and yet what is God saying in the course of, of I mean here, but also through the course of the Bible, that it's that death that you thought was so victorious for you is actually your greatest downfall. Like your ultimate defeat, Satan, happens, why? Because of the death of the Son, which you thought was so good. And is this not how God has worked throughout the whole Bible? That, that you would be judged and punished and the and wrath of God poured out on you as the sin that you committed against others. We're going to skip the other part there, verse 14. Verse 15. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. Okay, so, so again, we've, we've already kind of read that, right? I mean, does that not sound a whole lot like verse 9? On the end of verse 9, you, you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation. How was all that tied into? It was tied into uh, the sea. And so, again, we said that was Exodus. We said that was Pharaoh. Okay, I'm not saying any of those things are not true about first, 
verse 15, but I think there's something else that Habakkuk's wanting us to grasp. Okay, so if you go back to verse 6, kind of ending that first section, 6 and 7, but ending verse 6, what does he say? Uh, halfway through the verse. The perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. Okay, so, so kind of wrapping up that first section, he's pointing to the fact that God is everlasting. He's far greater than we are. We are not like him. He's eternal. We are not. And so what does he point us to to show us that God is everlasting? He points to these mountains. Okay, a couple thousand years ago, we don't have dynamite. We don't have things, the earth movers to move a mountain. So, so if you were to think of something that's eternal and doesn't move and doesn't change, what are you going to think of? You're going to think of a mountain. Okay, so, so to, to picture God's uh, eternality, I want to picture this mountain. Okay, now we're at the end of this section. Okay, you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. What do I think Habakkuk wants us to think about God as he talks about the sea and the power of it? This surge of many waters. I think what he wants us to recognize is that God is more powerful than the ocean. He's more powerful than sea. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat in the middle of a storm and you really didn't want to be on it anymore. Right? It's happened a couple times in my life where it's like in the midst of the storm, it's like the boat doesn't seem to have any sort of power. It's like the wave is able just to move it wherever it wants. And it's like, here's the power of the ocean. And we, the, you'd hear that phrase where I was just at the mercy of the power of the ocean. Right? Like, like that's the picture of, of this, the deep water that we already talked about. That's the picture here in verse 15. Like, this is amazing. And, and what does is, what is Habakkuk wants to land on? He wants to land on, we serve a God that's more powerful. So the most powerful thing that we can think of is probably what the ocean would do in the middle of a storm. And what do we want to recognize? We want to recognize that God is more powerful than that. Okay, so here's a couple thoughts just as we close. Okay, what do we, what do, we do with this? And I already told you some of it we're going to save for a discussion group. But two things that, that I want us to see just from all of Habakkuk 3, not necessarily 8 through 15, but uh, from really verse 2 through verse 15. What is Habakkuk doing? Okay, one thing that he's done over and over again in the midst of what's going on, this, this difficult circumstance, Babylon's coming in, all these things. Okay, what is one thing that he's done is that he's reminded himself in the people reading of how God has interacted in the past. Here's how God has acted. Here's what he's done throughout the history of Israel. Okay, so, so we know uh, Babylon, we know Babylon's great, we know Babylon's powerful, all those things, but we also know what God's done in Egypt. We also know the promises that he's made to us in Egypt. And so, so we can handle what's coming because we know of how God has done it in the past. Okay, second thing that I think Habakkuk wants to remind us of and, and speak into us is, is this picture, this idea of the greatness of God. I say greatness and not goodness. Goodness is his love, his mercy, all of those things, uh, compassion. Greatness seems to be more of where Habakkuk parks. And this is his eternality, that he's almighty, that he's sovereign, I like that side of things. And so I feel like we look, we, I kind of wrote, Israel looks at Babylon. What do they see? They see a powerful enemy, and yet Habakkuk's been reminding them, not necessarily of the goodness of God, though that's there, but it seems really to be a lot about the greatness of God, that God's greater than Babylon, that God's greater than the enemy. And so for us, like, what do we want to do? We want to remind ourselves of what God has done for us in the past, right? And, and we don't look back to Exodus. We can, but that's not where we would look. But we also want to be reminded of the greatness of God, right? Like, like we, I feel like American church again is the we. Uh, American church, we like to land on love and grace and mercy and some of those things. And I feel like sometimes we've missed the greatness of God. 
Like, like we want to talk about how much God loves me, and yet we don't talk about the power of God uh, and how he's worked and intervened in our lives in certain ways and his sovereignty and those things. We just kind of like mercy, grace, and, and that world. And so I'm not saying get rid of that world. We need that world. But I think we just also need to be reminded more and more of his greatness, that he is the one who's eternal. He is the one who's almighty. So, so we got one more week uh, in Habakkuk. We get to land right where Habakkuk lands and, and making it all personal. And so next week we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, but let's pray. We'll take a break, and then we'll dive into the discussion group. Father God, forgive us. Forgive us for having a, such a, a shallow view of you. I feel like Habakkuk here in this text has, has given us a, a big picture of an almighty, powerful God of a God who tells the sun and moon where to be, tells the waves where to stop. A God who, who would make the greatest military powers throughout history look, look very weak. And yet, God, somehow we, we think we can, we can manipulate you or we can treat you like some divine vending machine. We think somehow maybe we can, as a Bacchic thought in chapter chapter one, that somehow we can like trap you or get you to do something for us. So God, I pray that this morning that we would be reminded of your greatness, that you are the eternal one, we are not, that you are the all-powerful one, and we are not. You are the one with the power of life and death, we are not. And, and may that recognition of who you are and who, and who we are, may that drive us to you, may that that lead us to you. May we want more and more of the one who's eternal. May we want more and more of the one who's life-giving. May we want more and more of the one who's almighty. May we recognize our own weakness and we run to you. Father, we pray for a discussion group. I pray that you give us wisdom. I pray that it would be uh, just another time of iron sharpening iron as we walk through this text together. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.